0: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
1: Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. Today we're bringing you Inside the Slow Seed Summit – a conference hosted by Slow Food USA presenting perspectives on food security, seed preservation and sovereignty, and community engagement. The conference took place between May 13th and 15th, 2022, and as media partners for the summit, we're excited to give you an inside look at key conversations. Enjoy this peek into the Slow Seed Summit.
2: My name is Shelly Buffalo. First off, let me introduce myself. And um, I am... From the Meskwaki Tribe, uh, our our community is located in central air uh, in central Iowa. Uh, we are a Great Lakes um, Eastern Woodlands tribe, so um, we have um, migrated um, over the course of uh, a couple hundred years from um, the St. Lawrence River Valley, kind of in the of what is currently upstate New York. Um, So I'm uh, very grateful to have been asked to moderate this session and to welcome um, seed seed rematriators um, that are present here. Um, So this session is seed rematriation, bringing seeds home. Um, This this work is um, I don't know. With seed rematriation, it's 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 good to kind of remove um, your ideas about seed keeping um, as seeds as objects, because for for um, indigenous women, um, these seeds are our relatives. Um, these seeds are our ancestors, and that is the relationship that we have with them. Um, we just have uh, 30 minutes for everybody in, uh, well, for our panel guests um, to talk about the work that we're doing. So we're gonna just launch right into that. And um, and I will um, have the guests uh, introduce themselves, especially since today, I seem to be having problems talking. <laughs> and so um, I wanna say, first say welcome. Um, thank you um, for being here and for sharing uh, your time and energy and knowledge in this space um and uh we will start with Dr. Rebecca Webster.
0: All right. Sigoliswawek ganyatigelu nyungets ngwehne Becky Webster nyungets sloneygay wagwahoni widi to load oniataga nebogare humunchot dilunkawane nelegenyu. So what I just said in English is greetings everybody. My name is Ganieta Gale, which means snow scattered here and there. My, um, my English name is Becky Webster. I'm Wolf Clan. I'm Oneida, and I grew up near Duck Creek that runs through the Oneida Reservation. So what I'm going to be sharing with you today is our adventures on our farmstead with our seeds and caring for our, our food relatives, all the way from planting to harvesting, um, to cooking, and sharing them with our community. So we bought this property that we're on um, in 2017. And what I'm going to be talking about today is really that whole adventure. When we talked to our faith keeper about what we had planned for this property, he came up with this name Toslu. It means our foods, where we plant things. And as you'll see through the presentation, it's about more than just planting those seed relatives. It's about planting ideas, philosophies, and just generally a way of life. Next slide, please. So we have a pretty tumultuous history as all indigenous people do. Um, we've had you know, colonization, removal, assimilation, all of that has really impacted our relationship, not only with our seeds, our language, our culture, even our own history sometimes has been um, disrupted and sometimes we have to lay some of those practices down until there's a time where it's safe to pick it back up again. But even through all of that, we've had an unbroken relationship with our corn, bean, and squash all the way back to creation. And it has maintained a a part of our daily and our ceremonial lives. When it wasn't safe for a lot of us to practice that out in the open, There were enough families that went underground with this to be able to keep it safe for when a time came where the rest of us can practice that out in the open. And today is that time. So we're now finally able to be able to do these things, uh, celebrate our seeds, practice our ceremonies without being afraid of um, being persecuted for that. So that has um, really happened within our lifetimes that we've seen these things go from something that you only whisper about and and talk about quietly to things that we're doing out in the open, out loud, and um, just being really excited about it. Next slide, please. So we're relatively new to this. Um, In 2015 was the first time that we planted our indigenous heirloom seeds. And that was our Tuscarora white corn. And on the left you see 2015, we had this scraggly little Charlie Brown braid of corn, but we were so excited to grow this corn. We were just so proud of this funky looking braid. And um, we were hooked ever since then. So we had planted a number of gardens after that and then decided to go all in. And this last picture is most of our harvest from this past year with uh, an emphasis on Haudenosaunee varieties of corn, beans, squash, um tobacco and sunflowers so we've come quite a ways in this short amount of time and every year we learn so much about those seed relatives coming home to us and it's a little bit terrifying because we just know we're only scratching the surface like how much knowledge is still out there for us to try to gather and share with our children so that they don't have to try so hard to gather that information that's really the key of why we do what we do Next slide. So here's our property. We had purchased this in 2017, a 10 acre chunk of land that had been, you know, not treated very well. This last half, the lighter portion with those dark squiggly lines on it and the dots everywhere, those are actually tires. Over 2000 tires were on this property along with over 10 plastic barrels and rotten wooden structures all over the place. This was a former paintball field. And I'm sure it was a blast to be out there. Uh, I never went out there to, to play paintball. So our first encounter with this field was when we were purchasing it. We had the seller remove these um, the, the tires, of course, but we had to remove the other things like the barrels and, and the wooden structures. That front acreage along the along the road there was conventionally cropped and it had very poor soil with heavy clay and there was a drainage area in the front. So we knew we had a whole lot of work to do on this land to be able to prepare this land to be able to care for our seed relatives. Next slide. So we were able to get the help of some USDA grants. So we have a one acre pollinator habitat out um, along the road along with a, a border around the property, so to speak, that was um, that we're dedicating to tree planting. We're trying to plant indigenous tree species to the to our area. We also have a 30 by 90 high tunnel that has been really exciting growing in because it's supposed to extend the season a month earlier and a month later, so we can get our our, um, our food started in there earlier. And they live in there, they stay in there. It's not like a greenhouse where you take them out you plant right into the ground. So we're able to get different corn crops too because they will tassel and silk at different times. We don't have to worry about cross pollination so we can grow out varieties in the high tunnel and then the next year grow them out in the garden area. Next slide. So I mentioned that drainage area, we ended up turning it into a pond for more habitat restoration for this area. So we dug it in 2018 when we built our home and then we expanded it in 2020 to be able to create a field access to that pollinator habitat area, which soon is gonna be um, hosting um, some beehives. So we're pretty excited to have them move on to our property. Um, It was really sad when we had to drain the pond to expand it because there were a lot of toads and frogs that had called that place home. And when we drained it, they left because you couldn't hear them singing at night anymore. It was so sad. But then when we filled uh, the pond, filled back up naturally because we have such heavy clay. And then we waited and we waited and we waited. And about a month or so later, the toads and the frogs came back and they were singing again. So we're really reassured that we're doing the right thing in this area to be able to provide that habitat. We want to eventually get to a wind powered aerator for that because it's really doesn't flow out um, too much. It's more really of a drainage trap for the um the rest of our property. Next slide. So our focus is on Three Sisters Mounds. That's the main gardening that we do here on our property. And I think we have about over 200 of these mounds and we plant the Three Sisters together, the corn, the beans, and the squash. And um, they have these amazing roles that they play to, they work together. The corn grows tall and strong, the beans crawl up that corn stalk. Um, providing nitrogen to the soil, the squash covers the ground and spreads out, um, helping keep the moisture in the soil, keeping the weeds out, and even keeping the animals out. And we have um, one of our farm dogs, Stella, over there in the picture. We we post pictures of our gardens and we have Stella for scale. So that was July of one year and the corn in the mounds was doing amazing. So um, we use Stella there to show how those mounds were doing. Next slide. So here's just a real overview of our property. Um, our goals, what we do, we grow corn, beans, squash, sunflower, sunchokes, and tobacco. And last summer we were so excited to finally gain 501 c three tax exempt nonprofit status so that we will be able to hunt for grants to help us continue to educate our community about all of the different things about seed keeping, about planting, about harvesting, pre- preservation, cooking, we hold um, lots of different classes here for the community to be able to come and gather, to serve as another source where they learn about these things and they have access to our traditional heirloom varieties. So next slide. So this just talks about some of those events. So we recently built a farmstead kitchen where we host classes in there about how we you know process our corn. Um, we hold outdoor cooking events. We pound black ash to make baskets that help further in our cooking, like for corn washing. Um, We had one of our local um, Oneida potters come out and do a pottery demonstration and everyone was able to make a pot. So these are some of the things that we're doing to be able to celebrate those seed relatives through that whole entire process. Next slide. And this is that farmstead kitchen that we were able to build um, using some grant money that we recently obtained by getting that 501c3 status. So we're pretty excited to be able to welcome the community in here to be able to um, learn. And um, we have a number of events coming up over the summer and we even have a retreat of our, um, a couple of tribal departments are coming to spend the day with us to learn about processing our foods and um, getting to know those foods better. So um, next slide, and hopefully this one works. It's a aerial of the property, a drone footage. So that's the corn in the high tunnel from last year. And we had some um, tomatoes and some beans growing in there as well. And then we're coming out looking at the back of the house. There's some mounds on the right. You'll be able to see those right at the end of the slide too. And then, so this is the pollinator habitat and tree planting, and there's the pond, and you can see our three sisters garden. We have a um, a lot of beans that are planted on trellises so that we can grow more varieties of our beans, and we have a number of bush beans that are out there as well. A lot of berries that we grow here too, and there was a vacant spot over there it was a little bit glitchy on my end. I don't know what it looked like for you guys, but that's where the farmstead kitchen ended up being. So last summer it was just a slab that we had poured and now it's it's that farmstead kitchen. So our philosophy here uh, on our farmstead is that every time an indigenous person plants a seed, that is an act of resistance an assertion of sovereignty and a reclamation of identity. Yeah, Uncle. Thank you, Becky.
2: Um... As usual, an amazing presentation. Thank you for that. So we're gonna quickly move on to Kirsten. Kirsten Kirby-Shoot, please tell us about yourself and um, and the work that you do.
1: Hi, um, as she mentioned, my name is Kirsten Kirby-Shoot. I'm Shinket from Raven Moiti, although I was raised away from the village my village in Alaska, um, I was actually uh, brought up in Portland, Oregon, so an urban environment. Um, and Thank you so much, Becky, for that presentation. I love the drone footage. Um, it'd be cool to um, get a number of indigenous farms um, involved in that aspect so we can kind of check out visually um, how everybody's farm is doing. Um, it was really encouraging. Um, I am in, in Detroit, Michigan, and I run a small, about under an acre um, project called Sheshu Gardens. And Sheshu means butterfly, butterfly in Clinket. Um, it's really about the transformative nature of our seeds and our relationship to the land. Um, right now is my first year in this new space. And if you want to follow along, um, I'm at underscore hologram. And I think it's in the chat section. Um, But as I mentioned, I'm in Detroit. So a lot of the soil has been um, harmed. And there's a lot of trauma here um, due to colonization, um, due to the policing of Black and brown bodies. And and that's still very heavy in the air here. Um, So when I moved to Detroit, I immediately reached out to a few contacts I had um, gathered actually from Slow Food. Um, I read a Slow Food article from or about Shiloh Meeples who actually connected me to Rosebud, who's the next presenter. And at the time, they were working for American um, Indian Health and Family Services and had this amazing garden um, named Sacred Roots and programming um, surrounding that. And so that's actually... I'd like to thank um, my mentors um, for that because it um, spurred me to learn more about my um, cultural plants and foster my relationship with them. Uh, Yeah, for me, uh, seeds act as a telephone um, between generations. And although um, settler colonialism has destroyed a lot, Um, it hasn't destroyed those connections that we have with our seeds and they connect me to knowledge that I couldn't possibly know myself and I think that's why a lot of seed keepers um, end up kind of um, naming seeds as their teachers is because they teach them something new. Um, If it was already in our minds, then there would be no, no new knowledge. And I think that's, um, something that Safe Gardens, um, is really focused on is bringing in people and having them start relationships with their seed relatives. Um, the, the urban aspect of it is something I find interesting. And I see like people, um, you know, tuning in from all over and a lot of people are in more urban environments. And um, I'd heavily encourage people to um, know that the land, whether it's urban, whether it's on the res, whether, um, you know, you're in a rural area or a suburb, that the land, knows the people that are on it. And there's a responsibility um, to be in relationship with the land and properly um, have a proper relationship with it. And that, you know, I guess um, more people think of it as like human on human relationships, um, but just as you wouldn't, you know, throw garbage on your friend. Um, you would not throw garbage on your land relative. And I think that's very important to um, foster empathy when we're talking about um, land-based projects. Um, And honestly, every season is a conversation and a lesson, and it's comforting to know for me personally, that seeds don't start and end with us. um, There's not a binary when it comes to um, our relationship with seeds. And I think that's a very special relationship that we need to acknowledge and take care of. Um, I think Becky mentioned actually, about like the freedom to actually grow and plant our seeds. And that that knowledge was kept in secret and we would be prosecuted for it. But I also would like um, the audience to understand that we're still being prosecuted for our ceremonies and um, our gathering of food. And I mean, maybe Rosebud wants to follow um, up with this. Let me see, Yeah, Um, but we were recently, gathering maple syrup and um we had a ceremony to kick off sugar bush and the um there's actually like police presence there um and so although we have come out and made strides with with them being validated by settler colonialism um we have to realize that we are still held in that grip and that, um, we, the fight for food sovereignty is still present. And, um, and that's why I, I grow and, um, yeah, you want to go Rosebud?
2: Yeah, Rosebud, just go ahead and um, launch in there. Um, talk about um, the work you're doing and your experience, just anything that you'd like to share with us and and give us a little bio. Thank you.
3: Sure. Um, so my name, uh, my English name is Rosebud Bear Schneider. I um, am originally from Detroit, Um, I'm Bear Clan, Um, I'm Anishinaabe, Um, my people come from all over Turtle Island, my mother's family is uh, Puerto Petra from Mexico, and Apache, and my father's family um, is Ojibwe from Northern Wisconsin and also Shawnee from Oklahoma. So I represent Turtle Island in a really good way, <laughs> well-rounded way. Um, I'm currently um, talking to you all from Detroit. Um, and I wanna say thank you to Slow Food for uh, for asking me to be on this panel. It's a huge honor um, to be in the presence of Shelly, and Becky, and Kirsten, and all of you, and um, so I just want to say much for that. Um, my work um, in food sovereignty has really, really started, um, well, before there was a, you know, we've always been kind of doing this work before there was a word for it. Um, I, rem- I start having these little memories uh, pop up from, you know, Being a kid and uh, growing up with activist parents, (laughs) not quite understanding what they're doing, but, you know, we're doing we're doing something in the community. Um, But really, my 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 work, my career um, did not get started um, on this path until I became a mom. Um, My children are 12 and 14. um, And, you know, when I had them, there wasn't a doubt. That I would not, I would nurse them, um, breast, breastfeed them, and nourish them the way I, the way my body is meant to do. Um, that we can't talk about food sovereignty um, without mentioning that first. That is our first food, um, and that really sparked again my, my journey, my fire, my passion uh, for this work and and overall community work. Um, like uh, uh, Kirsten said, I worked for American Indian Health and Family Services for about 10 years. Um, first as a breastfeeding or- educator and a community health worker uh, doing home visits with, uh, with families, with young babies. Um, that morphed into um, garden work. <laughs> as you know, when you work in the, com- in the community, there's always other duties as assigned and um, a lot of it you know, ended up getting centered around outside work and caring for the for the little uh, little garden that we had in the yard there. Um, and then uh, a grant opportunity came across, and it was uh, it was a policy systems and environmental change uh, <laughs> grant. So one of the things that was listed that we could do was food sovereignty, food access, um, and with that we started a community readiness survey and a, um, a community assessment, um, and then turn that into an actual strategic plan, planning session with the community. And what we learned in, all, in those first steps was that folks really wanted a connection um, to their foods. They wanted more access. They wanted, um, and not just access eating, but access growing and learning about what, you know, what our ancestors did. Um so myself and Shiloh Maples, um, who is also a phenomenal uh woman in doing this work, um her and I uh, set out to learn as much as we could to bring it, then bring it back to our community and, and share that knowledge. Um that's how my work with Slow Food started. Uh there is a Detroit chapter, there is a Detroit chapter here. Um and we quickly got involved with that. Uh, we were able to go to Italy uh, two times um, before the pandemic. Um, and that was a life-changing, <laughs> um, life-changing time. Um, my my path on specifically with seed rematriation really started with sacred roots um, and, you know, learning, learning alongside and learning from, um, from Becky Webster, um, you know, it's, a lot of us have started this path together and it's really, it's really beautiful. And I mean, I want to echo everything that my two sisters um, just said. It's, it's why we do the work that we do. And um, I am, Kirsten for sure, (laughs) her and I have worked so closely together and um, building these connections and building community around seed matriation and around food food sovereignty and food access, speci- specifically culturally appropriate foods. Um, that's that's the whole point. <laughs> that's what we want to do. We want this this good stuff to keep spreading. Um, and in you know another five ten years, there'll be there'll be other people that came after us. Um, still carrying on this work. And, um, I think that, I think that's something else to remember is that, um, you know, for me, it's, I do this work to think, you know, for the next seven generations, we have to, we have to leave our, 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 our ancestors, our coming in ancestors, um, a good, you know, a good, good world to live in. And that starts with, that starts with all this knowledge a lot of knowledge and I would love for my great, great grandkids to, um, not have to keep relearning things and not, you know, not have to reclaim, um, and reconnect. And, uh, you know, it's, as, as Kirsten mentioned, it is, you know, my, my whole life has been in a, you know, in an urban setting and, um, it is hard to have access to culture and to, and to our food and to our people. Um, But (laughs) when you have communities like this in Detroit, um, it makes it easier. Um, All of us are so hungry for this connection and for this um, for each other, (laughs) you know, for community, especially now coming out of a pandemic. It's um, I'm really looking forward to reconnecting. in the, the last three years, I spent up in northern Michigan um, working on a farm um, called Ziba Mijuang uh, We also had a, um, a store called Minogan Market um, that is um, on Wakaduxin Territory, so Little Traverse Bay Band of Wodawas. Um, they own that farm. They own that land that we worked on. Um, it's a 300-acre farm. A uh, hundred of it is tillable. Um, we were it was purchased back in 2014, and we are um, <laughs> moving into a new chapter into um, as as that as this business. Um, we're we're taking some time to restructure and to re you know uh, re reassess some of our our mission. Um, we produce um, maple products, and we also have a strong focus on seed rematriation, they're growing out our our,
2: um, our
3: ancestral seed. And some of the main things that I would like to focus on currently, I'm in Detroit, here in Detroit. Um, but I am now a board member um, for Zeba Mujuan. So I'm really excited to, to, um, to see what the future has in store for, for that farm. Um, but yeah as as uh, as Kirsten mentioned um, here in detroit it's 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 definitely a an interesting uh, place to be indigenous um, but it's all I've ever known you um, you know being a a, a child of a, <laughs> a aim activist um, there's always uh there was always something going on. There was always like ways that we were connecting with community. Um, my dad did a lot of work here in the, in the city um, in different ways. He did a lot of repatriation work and he did a lot of education around, around our culture. Um, and I, you know, a lot of folks are like, Oh, you're following in your dad's footsteps. I'm like, yeah, I am. But I'm also like walking along those, his footsteps and making my own making my own way. Um, so I'm, you know, again, so appreciative of this, this life that I've, that I've built for my, for my family and for my community. Um, and I'm, uh, yeah, completely grateful. And I'm, I'm a little taken, um, you know, listening to, to Kirsten talk, it just, it just warms my heart so much. Like, I'm, I was over here, like, cheering up listening to her. So, <laughs> so miigwech, I'm going to stop talking now. Um, miigwech again for having me. Thanks. All right,
2: Rosebud, thank you so much um, for talking about. And I, you know, there's, like, I know there's so much more to talk about, just, like, specifically about Detroit. Uh, the Meskwaki have um, a Detroit connection. In fact, um, you know, we were, we were driven out of Detroit and historically, and um, and one of our famous quotes that we still live by, which is, you know, as we're being driven out is "Know ye that the fox, they are immortal. So I, um, you know, I have every intention of of coming to Detroit and um, and being in community with you and reestablishing uh, the Meskwaki presence in Detroit, because, um, you know, it's um, in the form of a garden, right? Because that's like that loving, you know, reestablishing the relationship um, with the land um, through our seeds. Um, I wanna, like one of the things that um, I wanted to, I guess, uh, you know, if any of you can speak to this, I think um, like, but this question is more specific um, for Becky is that, so you are Dr. Rebecca Webster. And um, I mean, in order to, um, yes, you know, um, earn your law degree and, and your profess- professorship, um, you know, everything that you've done, I mean, it's, it takes a lot of skill and energy um, in order to navigate white spaces, right? Like you've, you've become quite skilled at that. Um, At the same time, like navigating those spaces, um, it does take its toll. Right. And um, I'm, you know, I know that like you, you know, how much, how much you're pouring into your seed rematriation is part of like, you know, I guess healing from that. Um, but would you talk about that just a little bit about you know just your own, um, I guess coming into your own through seed rematriation after having you know to become a professional or even just that in relation to that experience of of yeah navigating white spaces um, in order to like succeed right in that world.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a huge question <laughs> and something that I've been um, battling for, you know, my entire life really. So, um, and, and I did grow up on the reservation here there, we were bused out to a public school. So you get right away. There's not a whole lot of Indian kids in the school because our reservation is kind of divvied up like a pie where they shoved all the kids to the white school. So I had to learn pretty quick on how to navigate those spaces. And, and I really thought the way to help my community was to be an attorney. And I went and I went to law school, and I came straight home, and I was an attorney for my nation for 13 years. Um, but I remember early on, it was funny. We were in a meeting, and we were going around the room introducing ourselves, and somebody introduced themselves as as a recovering attorney. And I thought, why would you do that to yourself? Go to law school and then not practice law? You're crazy. And now it's like, oh, oh, I get it. I understand now. So when I went back to um, earn my PhD, it was again in our community looking at our land use and how we're working or not working with our neighbors on how um, it's about sovereignty over our land and our space and trying to do that in face of all of these things that are coming at us, mostly local governments trying to tell us what to do, how to do it, where to do it, get their permits. You're not a real tribe. You're just a landowner. So even on the reservation, we still get those same things that you do in the city where colonizers think that it's really their, their way to hold that space. Um, and in my work with the seeds, it really came right around the same time as that career change when it was, I was exhausted. I was done with it. I thought, maybe this isn't the way to be able to really help and give back to the community. And you know, when we grew that corn that first year, it really just grabbed hold it grabbed hold and it took over. So um, I'm just really glad that 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 teacher, I think you both mentioned those seeds as our teachers have really been the greatest education that that I could possibly receive. And the one that's going to be the most meaningful to me and to my children and to our community. Um, because that's really where our knowledge is. That's where our ceremonies are. That's where our history is. The in those seeds is what lies everything that the colonizers tried to take away from us. And we are regaining that back. We're reclaiming it and we're sharing it with those people who might not have ready access to it yet, or maybe they're not ready to learn it yet, but when they're ready, we'll be here to help with those seeds. Yeah. Thank you. Um, And another
2: thing that just really comes to mind when it comes to, you know, our relationship with our seed relatives is that I think, um, you know, you know, we, we just finished up a a series of um, rematriation webinars, um, you know, through the partnership with Seed Savers Exchange. And I noticed that there was always a lot of our, our um, audience members, right, in the webinars that were really eager to, um, I guess, come into possession, right, of our indigenous seeds. And so there's, you know, it's, Uh, It's a it's a it's a troublesome kind of um, uh, line to to navigate um, as far as, you know, educating folks about the rematriation work that we do at the same time, like cautioning people to not fall into that um, appropriating behavior. Right. That's like so much a part of American culture. I mean, it's like, you know look at Amazon, you know, how you can just access things with a few clicks of your mouse and your credit card and come into possession of things so easily without, you know, having to do that through teachings and relationships. So I'm just opening up to any three of you to kind of like give your thoughts and your feelings, you know, let's, let's hear some of your heart work about this, because, you know, really we got to, there's just so much appropriation going on um, that it's something that needs to be spoken to. Thank you. And I can call on one of you, um, Kirsten.
1: <laughs> Everybody's too polite to jump in. <laughs> Kirsten, do you want to start? Yeah, no problem. Um, I've actually um, come into a lot of contact with this appropriative behavior through um, cooking, um, I see, I guess I see it less in the growing of food. Definitely it's there, but, um, when it comes to cooking, I think, uh, the, uh, the things that we've depended on since time immemorial, um, have become exotified to, uh, these chefs who are mostly of a, a European background and, uh. I, you know, recently it was um, ramp season, so like wild leeks. And I went back to a patch to harvest and I noticed you know, that hundreds have been pulled by their root system, which ramps take at least four years from seed to even propagate um, and become uh, thriving plants. And so, um, sometimes it's it's a fine line between realizing that seeds have autonomy, and it's not up to me to uh, tell people how to interact with plants. Um, but I definitely do want to do that a lot. <laughs> I would love to call everybody out on harvesting ramps from their roots and. Um, you know, over-harvesting plenty of other plants. Uh, But ultimately, um, I think it is my role to educate people and have uh, relationships with people that um, maybe, and yeah, like it is unfair, but um, to educate people on, um, the importance of preserving indigenous food for the indigenous population. Um, I saw something. I I'll try to credit it if I can. But um, there's something going around saying like, "What is your uh, what is your relationship to this plant?" And if you don't have a history, if you don't have a relationship with it, and it's um, being threatened, then um, what uh like what right do you have like rights by nature right like an agreement with nature like what do you have um agreement wise to um harvest or interact with this plant and I think that's a very important question and I ask it all the time like um am I harvesting too much like what do I have um what do I have in terms of relationship with this plant um to take care of it and like what am i returning to the plant am i just taking um or am i giving something in return so i think that's an important thing for everybody to ask themselves
2: yeah thank you for that perspective i think um um something occurred to me just to you know and and it's in connection to all of this um but uh just um like Rosebud, I know that you had to move uh, recently uh, relocate. Um, all of us you know all four of us here are um, you know have had you know just a history of removal right we've we've had 500 years of this um you know from our um, ancestral lands um like for example, um, Becky and I, we we live on our current tribal homelands, but that's not our historic tribal homelands. And um, and I think like probably a lot of folks in the audience don't don't really understand how so much of that was, um, you know, even like the relocation of of Native folks to the urban areas was very much a, a, a United States policy, right? Especially post World War. Um, you know, right around that era in the 50s. And so um, just, um, Rosebud, if you would speak to, you know, um, how how you've been able to stay resilient, right, and strong and, and continue the work of building community um, while experiencing, you know, displacement.
3: Yeah, um, I always think about this a lot because you know this is the land i've only ever known um and i think that is true for a lot of urban natives urban indigenous people um i was born and raised right in detroit and i yeah there's (laughs) there's so much i could say my mind's going in a million different ways but um you know, having, again, having this connection to land here in the city, there's always talk about land ownership. Um, and I often find myself, I'm o- always the only one in the room, like internally rolling my eyes like, man, <laughs> you, none of you own this land. They, the land owns us, right? We, we're here to care for this land it's um it it's it's a reminder that i i've had to say multiple times in multiple spaces and as a farmer here in the city um it's hard it's hard out here um when we we were growing in a public space and we were just trying to care for these seeds we were just trying to you know give them a place to grow and 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 care for them but we ended up being like you know, again, like always, um, with our head on the swivel and, um, in like major protection mode. Um, and, and also like, you know, in the educator mode all the time and it's, you know, it's hard, but it's, but what keeps me going are spaces like this and colleagues like, like Becky and Kirsten and and folks, all you know, all around doing this work—that's this type of stuff—is what revives me and keeps me going. Um, knowing that um, there are other people just like me in their parts of the world fighting just like me, um, and that gives me hope <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I hope that answers the question. <laughs>
2: Well, it's not so much a question as it is, you know, just inviting you to, you know, provide your reflections. And even in and i I see, you know, I see you like, and I see you struggling to kind of hold things back, you know, in in really being honest about your experience because once again, that's something that we've been taught to navigate the white world, right? to really, very carefully change, yeah. you know, very carefully, Choose our language so as to m- not make, um, to not make others uncomfortable. Which is right. other others from the group that has, you know, that are the you know that are the occupiers, right? Mm-hmm. The invaders. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but that you know sometimes quite literally have guns pointed at us. You know, yeah, and yeah, <laughs> something something as simple as going to the sugar bush, which is. You're going there in ceremony to um, to tap maple trees to collect sap to cook down into maple syrup. What mm-hmm. can be like coming out of you know a cold, cold winter and and coming into like s- relationship with these trees, which which with such gratitude, right? This was like a lifeline for us um, coming out of the cold, cold winters, and um, being able to refine these sugars, I mean, it's just amazing from from our tree relatives and to have it, um, you know, be, be surrounded by police. I mean, that's <clears throat> so it's yeah, it's this this work that we do. It isn't the same as ordering seed from a catalog. Right. And um, it is, you know, there's a reason why we are have to keep our heads on the swivel um, because, um, you know, we are this is an active form of resistance and an active form of, of um, decolonization.
3: Yeah. I also want to add, you know, sorry to cut you off, but I'd also want to add that we are also women doing this work in a heavily male driven, you know, agriculture field. Um, I'm often (laughs) uh, one of the only women doing this work. Um, So that, I mean, that's another, an Indigenous woman who had, who is strong and can stand up for herself, um, you have to be careful. Um, and, and there's also like the other, you know, the other layer is sometimes you're working in these institutions that, yeah, we want food sovereignty. Yeah, we want this great stuff. Like here's, here's the tools to do it. Here are the resources to do it, but do it my way. <laughs> and you still have to you know, justify every single thing that you do. Um, Sometimes we're working in spaces that we're trying to decolonize that don't want to be decolonized. And I think that is something that you really have to remember. You're going to get me fired up, Shelly. I'm trying to hold it back.
2: (laughs) That's what I'm here for. Um, (laughs) Like it's, that's kind of, you know, when I first, um, when I first heard Vandana Shiva speak, I think that was in 2015, she came to Iowa. Um, I just, I broke down like in uncontrollable sobbing because it was one of the first times where, she, you know, I heard someone really articulate that relationship between um, the, the harm destruction um, done to our seeds in relation to the harm and destruction Um, The violence upon women's bodies. Um, It's United States policy. Well, one of the even before the United States was the United States. Actually, um, I think it may have been for us Great Lakes tribes. I think it may have been the French who, by the way, Meskwaki are the reason that French isn't spoken in this part of the United States. <laughs> we 40 years of resistance against the French pretty much caused the sale of the uh, you know, Louis Louisiana purchase. We bankrupt them. Like you can't make 40 years of war on foreign soil without it costing a lot of money. Yay. Anyway, um, I just had to plug that in there. <laughs> but the they they really quickly realized that. You know in order to to dispossess indigenous folks of their land, they had to attack the women right so i mean it was a it's it's it began a campaign basically of misogynistic um propaganda and um and continues today with you know the missing and murdered um indigenous women, which is it's the it's not even you know i think um fortunately with um deb Holland, secretary of the interior now that it, there's actually efforts for that to be tracked but prior to that you know there was no no tracking of the numbers um i did want to speak to land access really quick and there was a, a you know in the chat there's a question about um Uh, you know, education and outreach. Um, But real quick, I just want to bring up land access because it's huge. I think that there's a lot of assumptions that since tribes have reservations, that there must be land access. But even upon reservations, there's very little to almost no land access. So I want to speak to that, especially in the upper Midwest. We have A lot of land that now is potentially going to be in transition, a lot of farmland that's going into transition in the next 10 years, meaning that the the previous um, families that have inherited this farmland are um, are aging out of farming and they're going to be selling their farms. Many of those farmland owners are women, actually. So let's talk a little bit about land access.
0: I can mention, because you've talked about on reservations, how people think we have a lot of land in Oneida is a, in a very fortunate position. We have thousands of acres of land that the Oneida tribe owns, and it's agricultural land. But the problem is that we've acquired it without really having a plan for what to do with it. So either we have a tribal department that continues to cash crop, you know, corn and soybeans, corn and soybeans, and doesn't really grow a lot of food for actual people to consume. And our processes on how to lease that land aren't very um, beneficial or favorable to small scale farmers or indigenous co-ops or anything like that. It's really difficult to try to get land from the tribe because they say watch the advertisements and it's like well i'm not going to bid on a hundred acre piece of land that i don't want a hundred acres um so and and i'm extra critical because i'm actually the chairwoman of the oneida land commission and we've been trying and trying for over the past six years on, on my tenure on the land commission to try to change that and change is so difficult and we're just trying to say let's make a process where a tribal member can come to us and say, hey, I want two acres of land to start a berry co-op. It should not be that difficult for the tribe to turn around and say, hey, all right, let's try to look for some land. But for some reason, it's really difficult to get that. So even in cases where tribes do have land, land access is still a problem.
3: Well, the same goes for Detroit, <laughs> as you can probably imagine. Um, you know, Detroit has uh, has, nav- has not has a long history of not being managed properly. <laughs> uh, trying to access and purchase land is a hot mess. Um, and you know, when you when you when you if you ever Google Detroit and and its agricultural. Um, seen here it gives the um it gives the impression that there's farmers everywhere there's you know people you know farming and growing things and and while that's true um there's also a piece of that story that's missing and and that piece is um the fact that there's been neighbors you know residents of Detroit that have vacant lots um, on either side of them, or, or live in a in a neighborhood that it's mostly vacant lots. Um, they've been caring for that land for for quite some time, but they don't own it, and they can't own it, and they can't get Detroit to sell it to them. And now, uh, now, you know, government has changed, hands have changed, and things are trying, you know, trying to um, get more organized and. And do things, you know, in a procedural type of way, um, but then these actual people, these these landowners or these caretakers of this land, um, are are losing out now to gentrification and and these you know young folks coming in that have the money, that have the know how, that have the access to you know land to do a quick land grab, um, and then you know there's the, there's the, the six-year-old family that's been caring for these vacant lots for their entire life and it's gone. (laughs) That, that happens all the time. Um, So yeah, just uh, wanted to throw that out there. That's also a huge thing that, that happens.
2: Yeah, we're, I got the two minute warning um, one minute ago. (laughs) So we're, yeah, we're going to be running out of time here and in probably 45 seconds. I want to just, um, I wish we had longer time, right? To share our our perspective and experience with everybody. I just want to thank the three of you for your time and for your knowledge, and especially um, for the work that you continue to do. I want the audience to understand this is like, it's on one time, at one, on one hand, this work connects us to our ancestors and it gives us strength. On the other hand, this is very difficult work to do, right? This is like an active resistance of colonization, um, and especially in women, in in the feminine body, um, in in is a, a in a dominant system that that seeks to um, harm us, cause us harm. Um, so, I want to encourage folks to continue to explore seed rematriation work. Um, I don't know if any of the Slow Food hosts want to chime in before we say goodbye. I can chime in and say thank you so much. I'm, my name is Mara Welton, I'm the director of programs and have pulled together this panel for today because this work is ongoing, it's historic um, and it's our future, I think, and it's certainly the future of these communities. And I just really am so grateful to you for sharing your experience and your knowledge Deep gratitude to all of you for um, opening the eyes of our our network to some of this uh, really hard work that's being done um, in your communities and um, anything that our network can do to help uplift your efforts. Please, I'm only a phone call away. (laughs) We'll do what we can. And we'll certainly invite you back for a longer conversation in the future. Um, Thank you. Just thank you so much. We um, are having another session with our authors coming up
0: next. Um, please stick around. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.